I read comics, show number 57. going to be a cranky podcast because I'm in a cranky mood. I had a really bad day at work and I didn't even have Logan there to vent to because he's on vacation. So it's just me being all cranky and not having people listen to me, which is the thing that makes me the most cranky. So I will try to maybe get a little bit of the crankiness out of the way so I can talk about the good stuff because I do have some very wonderful things to talk about. Uh, Given my current crankiness, I thought I would... um, dish a little bit, which I don't normally do, but I felt like this week I really needed to. As you know, I am a faithful reader of the blog When Fangirls Attack because they provide links to great articles all over the place that are interesting and diverse and represent a lot of different points of view. And therein lies the conundrum. They feel to be responsible, that they need to represent opposing points of view as well, not just the people who support the feminist side and say that most representations of women in mainstream comics suck and they should be changed and pointed out and make fun of it and calls for action and all that. But also the point of view that women should just shut the fuck up and suck it up because that's all they're good for. And I mean that exactly how it sounds. So once in a while they'll link to it. But in the last couple of weeks, they've linked a lot to bloggers, two separate bloggers who have two very different styles of attack And I'll mention them by name, but I'm not going to link to them. So if you want to seek it out, you can. Or you can just go to When Found Girls Attack. They've actually started something new, which I like a lot. When they put in a link, they'll indicate who they're linking to so that you can actually skip the ones you don't want. And I'm really happy about that because if there's anybody I don't want to read, it's these two guys. One of them calls his... His handle is Rational Madman, and the other is Mad Thinker Scott. And I don't know their real names, and I don't care. The Rational Madman guy is kind of your typical, like, 18-year-old loudmouth guy who just thinks he's really smart and essentially insults women and and tries to play that he's so much better than everybody else and is completely sexist. Um, so he's a jerk, and you shouldn't talk to him. Um, and then the other guy, the mad thinker, Scott, is one of those guys who um, kind of just talks at you until his avalanche of words just buries you and is really good at citing lots of evidence that is supposed to support his point but really doesn't, and he just keeps talking and talking. And he never gets nasty or anything. He just talks too much. So I I am annoyed... <laughs> that they get linked to so much. I'm also annoyed that people waste their time arguing with them. I guess that's what really annoys me. So from my point of view, you gain nothing by arguing with them, unless, now that I think of it, if you're using it as a forum for honing your argument skills, your taking down of the opposition skills, it's probably good for that. It's a good way to, to sharpen your, yourself doing that. Um, or if it sends you off to actually dig up the evidence that you need or the statistics, that's a good thing too. But on the whole, arguing with people like that is completely pointless because you're never going to change their minds. Um, it doesn't make you look any better, and it will probably raise your blood pressure way beyond where it needs to be. So I would say it's not worth arguing with people like that, and especially those two people. The other little dish that I wanted to talk about was uh, 
Well, as you all know, Scans Daily is one of my favorite groups. I read it every single day. It's on my LJ friends list. And somebody a couple weeks ago had posted some stuff about uh, Greg Rucka and one of his characters and how they didn't think that he had treated one of these female characters very well. And he read it, and boy, he threw a little hissy fit about it on his own blog. And, uh, you know, people, of course, are allowed to have their opinion, and authors are allowed to respond to it. But come on, Greg Rucka, you got your panties in a twist over some comments on Scans Daily? Come on, don't you have better things to do? And come on, you're a creator. You gotta have thicker skin than that, man. Especially from, you know, Scans Daily. (laughs) And I'm not putting down Scans Daily in any way, shape, or form. I'm just saying that that is a group that's established for the sole purpose of people to go overboard and act crazy and say all kinds of things and vent and complain about things. And it's not meant as a forum for really... Uh, deep down criticism, although it sometimes happens there. I've, I've been pretty surprised at the level of discussion that will go on in the comments sometimes. It's really very good. So uh, I just thought it was pretty funny that he got himself so bent out of shape over some comments on Scans Daily, of all places. So those were my, my little venting things. Um, there is a really good thing that I wanted to mention. I was really happy to see. So there is now a new... Um, Link Farm blog called Comic Gays, which does the same thing for uh, gays, lesbians, bisexuals, um, that When Fangirls Attack essentially does for women. Although, you know, they're not shy about posting stuff that's um, homo-related as well. So uh, it's called Comic Gays. Let me just check the URL. And it is located at comicgaze.blogspot.com. And it's run by uh, Dorian Wright, who's the guy who does the fabulous postmodern Barney blog, which I I love anyway. So I'm really happy that he's doing it. And so far, um, he's been doing a really good job. It's not, of course, as extensive as When Fangirls Attack, but uh, he's been posting regularly, got a lot of interesting stuff. Um, Not surprisingly, a lot of his recent links have been to um, this story about Perry Moore and his new novel called Hero, which is about a young teenage gay superhero. And we will be reviewing that book on this show. I I think uh, Logan already went to a bookstore and bought it already. And as I said, he's on vacation this week, so I think he took it with him to read. So maybe we'll be talking about it when he gets back. But um, I'm really happy to see all the, the publicity that Perry Moore is getting about this book. And if you want to read some of it, you can go to Comic Gaze and look through all the links and read it there. So that was a really good thing. So let's see. I think um, I'm going to take a quick musical break so I can assemble the materials that I want to talk about. Oh, I I will say one other thing. I did spare myself some annoyance this week. I went to the library last weekend, and I was looking through the graphic novels. And damn, if they didn't have a great big pile of Ultimates. All kinds of Ultimate stuff. They had Ultimate X-Men and Ultimate Avengers and Ultimate Fantastic Four. And I looked at them and I looked at them and I remembered the last time I talked about an Ultimate book, I actually said, why do I do this to myself? So I picked one up and I put it right back on the shelf. And instead, I checked out an asterisk book, (laughs) which I haven't read yet, but I'm really looking forward to seeing. So I did myself, and I did you a favor, too, so you don't have to listen to me complain about the Ultimates in this particular show. So there you go. All right, uh, let's have some of that fabulous Ginger Mayerson music, uh, which is so, so very wonderful. You should all go and download it, and then we'll come back with some reviews.
Okay, so let's do the first one and get it out of the way. This is uh, another gift book, and it's called Ex Machina, The First Hundred Days, and it's by my good friend Brian Cavon, and the art is by Tony Harris. And this was one of those books that I had heard about but never read, and um, I have some things about it that I really like, and then I have some criticisms of it. So, you know, I've decided that rather than me stupidly trying to summarize what happens, I'm just going to go to the Wikipedia entry because it's better than what I could say. <laughs> So, uh, let's see, the series details the life of Mitchell Hundred, a.k.a. his superhero name, the Great Machine, the world's first and only superhero who, in the wake of the actions on 9-11, is elected mayor of New York City. The story is set during Hundred's term in office and interweaved with, should be interwoven, with flashbacks to his past as the Great Machine. Through this, the series explores both the political situation he finds himself in and the mystery surrounding his superpowers. That's a pretty good summary. So the first book um, collects... Uh, uh, I think the first five comics, I'm just looking at it to see. Yes, one through five. And this was published in 2004. And it's um, really good for a first five issues of something. I think there are supposed to be 50 issues altogether. So uh, it'll be coming to an end. I have no idea where they are right now because this isn't the kind of thing that I'm going to go out and buy. Uh, it's up to number six in the trade paperbacks now. And um, I, I, I think it's really... It's really interesting to see a comic book that's based on politics, more or less. I mean, there's not too many characters who are mayors of cities. So that's a really cool thing. Um, and I like the fact that through the whole first five issues, where um, he gets his powers from is still very mysterious. Uh, he gets caught in an explosion of some kind of presumed alien device. And that's pretty much all we find out about it in these first five issues. And it gives him the superpower of being able to... Uh, control or communicate with more like um, all of the machinery that's in the world so he can make things stop and start and uh, has great control over everything. So I think that's a cool premise and I like the fact that uh, he's a funny guy and is, as you would expect, someone being thrust into a position of being mayor of New York City, um, not really prepared to deal with all the shit that comes with a job like that. So um, Vaughn gave him a pretty good supporting cast of characters who are um, sort of diverse, which I thought was great. So he's got um, this best friend who's an ex-Marine, um, his, the guy who helped him, who sort of helped raise him because he was the son of a single mother, um, is a Russian guy um, who he nicknames Kremlin, and uh, Kremlin helps him build the um, jetpack that he originally used when he was the great machine. Um, he has a deputy mayor named Dave Wiley, who happens to be a black guy with dreads, which is pretty cool. Um, the, there's a woman who's the police commissioner of New York, which is also pretty cool. Um, of course, there is the um, white blonde woman who is um, an intern in this book, and her name is Journal Moore, which is kind of a stupid name. Um, and there's also a woman who is his uh, PR person uh, named Candace Braving, and she is drawn in, in this first five issues she's kind of older she's a little overweight but i like that she's very distinctive looking like you look at her and you go oh i recognize her immediately and she has a sort of brusque air about her i found it pretty true to life that the people all more or less behave like new yorkers do which is that much more abrupt and and um fast moving than you might ordinarily find people so i thought that that was cool um there are of course bad guys who are partly in the government and then some other people who appear to be with uh NSA or something like that. So 
there's intrigue, lots and lots of intrigue. And there's the mystery of where he got his powers from. So I, I thought this was really, really good. So here are the criticisms that I have. Um, the first one is that this woman, who is the intern, Journal Moore, she's supposed to be, oh, well, she's an intern, so she's supposed to be in college. Unfortunately, she looks about 45 in most of the illustrations here. And that really threw me off because I thought when they were saying intern that she was like, uh, I don't know, like past being a grad student that she was doing this because she was trying to start her own business. Or like I couldn't quite figure out why she was 45 and uh, an intern at City Hall. is really weird. Um, I guess she's not supposed to be 45. I guess she's supposed to be 22 or something. She's certainly not drawn that way. And there's a scene in here which is my least favorite scene in the whole book, where she really comes off as someone with a lot more life experience than a 22-year-old intern. She has a conversation with another character where she's kind of dispensing her hard-won knowledge of the world. So, I don't know, maybe that's a plot point. Maybe we find out later she she's immortal, or she has some super knowledge or something like that. But that I found very, very jarring. Um the art in general is uh, done from photographs, and that's good and bad. I, I think it's good because there's a lot more detail to the characters. They look like real people, and I think most of the characters do look different from each other, which is great. But for me, anyway, it also feels very static, and I know that this is a criticism people have leveled at Alex Ross, that a lot of his stuff just looks like people standing in poses, and it's true, and I think it's also true for a, for me, for a lot of this comic book, that there's just not a lot of action going on. Um, people are posed, and they're just kind of standing there, and I don't get any kind of feeling of, of movement or action in it at all. There's a couple places where there is action, where there's, a, there's an explosion, a big explosion, and that looks like an explosion. So uh, that does, um, I'm assuming he didn't actually blow something up and take a picture of it to get that. Um, but I don't know. Maybe he did. So here's the, the big complaint that I have. There's a subplot in here about an artist who has a picture at an exhibition. Um, and it's in the middle of a blizzard and it's going to cause riots. So they have to figure out how not to cause riots while there's a blizzard and all this other shit is going on. So um, they come up with a solution or she takes it upon herself, I should say. Journal Moore, the 45-year-old intern, goes to this woman's apartment, her studio, to try to talk her out of doing this exhibition. And, and this is the scene I'm talking about where Journal is speaking as someone far more older and wiser and just not 22 <laughs> in this at all. Here's, here's my big complaint. Through this whole book, aside from this, I was like, oh, look at the women. They look great. They look like real women. They look normally normal weight, normal height. They look different from each other. There's no gratuitous TNA going on. And then we get to this scene. Hey, here's the gratuitous TNA. I knew it had to be in here somewhere, and here it is. So we have an artist studio, presumably, with our artist here, um, who is, it's in the middle of a blizzard, so she's wearing a tank top with no bra underneath it, and I know that because you can see her nipples in every single panel that she's drawn in. I am not joking. Every single panel, she's got huge upright nipples. They look like she has two corks underneath her shirt. Now, I'm not sure why she's not wearing a bra. Maybe she doesn't want to, but she's also welding at the same time. So she's wearing a tank top, and she's got a welder's mask on, 
And she's welding. And you know what? I don't think I would weld in a tank top. Frankly, I wouldn't even cook bacon in a tank top. <laughs> you know, um, I'm not sure what kind of torch this is, whether it's like an arc welding torch or an acetylene torch or anything else. But damn, I'm not going to be doing any welding in a tank top. That's for sure. Um, I also noticed that this welding that she's doing, it's in the middle of a room. So I am sure that things are going to be catching on fire in this room pretty darn quickly. Um, you really don't want to be welding in a wooden room that has, um, I'm pretty sure this room has a wooden floor. Yeah, it does have a wooden floor with like curtains and paper and all kinds of really flammable stuff hanging around. That's just stupid. You know, do a little research before you're going to print something like this. And then, not only is she not wearing a bra and has um, giant erect nipples in every single panel that she's drawn in, she's also wearing a pair of really low-slung jeans, and of course she has a thong on underneath it, which you can see because she's got really low-slung jeans on. So it was really clear to me why she was drawn like that. It's because this is a fanboy's impression of what a edgy, hip, sarcastic, cynical you know, creative, wild woman with dreadlocks artist looks like. That she's putting her body on display for you, because that's obviously the most important thing. So that was really offensive. And um, here, here's what happened. I'm reading this book, and this doesn't occur till oh, a good three quarters of the way through the book. So I was reading it, and I was grooving on it, and I'm thinking, wow, I really like this. I'd like to find out what happens. I like, I like Mitch Hundred. I think he's interesting. I like these other guys. There's a, a mystery. Someone's blowing up things, and I wanted to see how that was going to turn out. And then I got to this scene, and the brakes screeching in my mind. I just came to a complete stop, and I almost stopped reading it right then and there because this was so out of place and gratuitous and offensive to me. But I finished reading it, and I was kind of happy with the way they, they wrapped up the mystery. Um, of course, it turned out to be a geek who did it, because, you know, you can't trust those geeks. Um, and then there's some clues in here as to what's going to happen next, and another different mystery gets solved. But, um, you know, this one scene, that did it for me, so I'm not going to read any more of this because of that. And I wonder how many other women felt that way upon reading it that it was so great right up until that point and then it was like getting smacked in the face with the same kind of awful gratuitous stuff that you see all the time you know can't there be one book that doesn't have it in there can't couldn't they have drawn her wearing normal clothes there's no reason for her to be drawn like that it adds nothing to her character it doesn't tell us anything about her that her words and her attitude expressed through her actions didn't already tell us and all it did was serve to uh, well it was fan service clearly and and then it served to piss off some women because I'm sure I'm not the only one so that was really disappointing so I'm not going to be reading any more of Ex Machina even if it is the greatest book in the world because um, that just turned me off so uh, I was kind of sad about that and that's now my second Brian K. Vaughn book that I'm not going to be reading any more of although I'm I have to say I wonder whether his script called for her to be drawn 
in a gratuitously provocative manner, or whether Tony Harris, the artist, just took it upon himself to draw her that way. Um, I would be curious to know what, what the answer is. And I guess I'm sort of mildly curious to know whether this happens in the subsequent issues, but um, I'm not going to pay any money to find out. And, you know, I wouldn't even really check it out of the library. So, sorry about that. Let's move along to something fun. This is, um, I mentioned this actually in the last podcast when I was chatting with my brother. It's the archive edition of The Metal Men, Volume 1. And this was a gift, a lovely gift from Greg. So thanks very much for this book. It is just so awesome. I'm so happy to have it. Um, I had been thinking about The Metal Men. And I've got Metal Men comics somewhere in my collection, but I haven't been able to lay my hands on them, and I was really itching to read them again. My Metal Men interest was also sparked again by uh, Chris Sims at the, um, incred- the, the su- Invincible Super blog, which is hilarious. And he had done, um, gosh, it was a while ago, uh, a couple of posts which were a pretty in-depth look at some of the stories in this particular book. So then I, when I read them, I was like, oh, I remember all this stuff about the Metal Men. This is so cool. And I was wanting it, and now I have it again. And now I'm going to have to buy more because this was not enough. So uh, this is Original Metal Men. This book was published in 2006, and it collects um, their first appearances, which were in Showcase, and then Metal Men 1 through 5. And boy, these are old. I hadn't realized that these are 62, 63, and 64. And all of these were by um, Bob Kaniger. And I sure hope I'm saying his name right. I, I misspoke when I was talking with my brother. He's not alive. He passed away um, a couple of years ago, which is too bad, you know. And I, and I was reading his bio on Wikipedia, and he was pretty active right up until the end. He was um, writing and, and doing stuff and really um, involved in comics for a very long time. So the stories are by Bob Kaniger, the covers in the interior art penciled by Ross Andrew and the inked by Mike Esposito. So the fact that these same artists worked on all of the issues that I have in this archive collection meant there was a lot of consistency, which is really cool when when you see it. Um, these Metal Men comics are, I know this gets tossed around too much, but they are cracktastic, this, this word cracktastic. They really, really are. And like my brother was saying, it was from a time when people were writing comics and just being crazy, but not because they were going, hey, look at me, I'm so crazy. This was just what came out, and it was acceptable for kids, even though it was totally insane. And just about everything in here is totally insane. But that is why I love it so much. This is as escapist as you can possibly get. It is impossible things happening in impossible ways that just make your jaw drop. Um, so I'm going to recap one of the stories that's in here. But let me just tell you a little bit about the Metal Men. Now, I, I'm also going to say I know that the Metal Men have been relaunched recently. And I've got some stuff to say about that. Um, I remember, and I think the ones that we have, Metal Men comics, are all uh, from the mid to, to late 60s. And I know that there were comics beyond that, but I never read them. So I don't know what eventually happened. But... Um, there's the guy who invented the Metal Men, Dr. Will Magnus, their genius inventor, as he's called. And he's got a pipe, and he looks a lot like um, Bob, who is the, um, you know, the head of the Church of Subgenius. He looks exactly like that. It's kind of scary. So his robots are gold, lead, mercury, iron, tin, and, of course, platinum. And platinum is the only chick in the group. So... However he managed to invent these robots, it's, it's pretty mysterious. It's just that he invented them. 
and they look like people, and um, they have all of the qualities of the metals that they're made out of. So that's the gimmick in this. So Mercury can kind of turn himself into all different shapes, like and be liquid because he's Mercury. And lead can shield them from radioactivity. And gold can, uh, is because he's so malleable, he can put into different shapes. And platinum can be spun out to a very, very fine thread and things like that. Um, so they all have slightly different personalities, which kind of correlate to the metals that they're made out of. And mercury is a real hothead. And um, lead is, is not the quickest thinker. And tin, I don't know why they picked tin for some reason, is kind of the... Uh, the um, the stuttering, bumbling uh, Don Knotts of the group. Yeah, that's pretty much the way I characterize him. And Tina, as they call Platinum, is the girl. <laughs> so l- let me back off for a second and say, now I was just complaining about Ex Machina and how uh, this woman is portrayed in there. Um, I-, I do understand context, okay? Ex Machina came out like a couple years ago. This was written in 1962, and I don't expect the treatment of women in comics written in 1962 to be equivalent to the way they are now 40 years later, more than that. So what boggles my mind, though, is is this the whole character of Tina, right? So Dr. Will, as everybody calls him, he invents these robots. He makes them look like people, different people. Um, and, oh, he's also magically able to resurrect them after they get destroyed, which is in every single issue. Um, and we're not quite told how he does that, but it's, what we do find out is that um, when they were made, they had some kind of magical thing happen. And, um, you know, when he has to remake them after they get smashed to bits, he has to gather up all the original pieces because, I don't know, they got souls or something. It's never really quite explained here. So the thing with, with Tina Platinum is that she has um, a defective... Uh, responder thingy inside of her and it makes her act like a real woman Uh, of course in 1962 parlance that means she falls in love with him right away and is hanging over him all the time and is very protective um so he keeps saying (laughs) he he invents these robots and they're amazing robots i mean they can do superhero things clearly and tina can too you know she does superhero things throughout and is brave and and is willing to sacrifice herself and help save the day on any number of occasions. Um, But he keeps saying that because she acts like a real woman, he's going to donate her to the museum. And in fact, in one comic, um, he actually does that. And what do they do with her at the museum? They put her in a glass case. (laughs) So like you invent the most amazing robots ever made and then because the one is annoying to you, you give it to a museum and they go ahead and put it in a glass case. Doesn't that seem stupid? Doesn't that seem like a waste? I mean, if you had the greatest robot that was ever made, wouldn't you like do stuff with it? Or I don't know. Anyway, so, so this whole threat, it's in every single issue. He keeps saying, um, I'm sending her to the science museum, or if you don't start behaving, I'm going to send you to the science museum, or uh, I should have given you to the science museum like I said I was going to. And he just keeps threatening her with that over and over again. It's awful and really cruel. It's like, it, you know, I'm going to send you to prison. And, you know, it's his own damn fault. He's the one who put the faulty responder into her. It's not like it's her fault that she turned out the way she did. You know, take credit for your own mistakes, bucko. In a subsequent issue that's collected in here, um, he actually makes a new platinum robot 
but that he, he makes it from different material, not from the same original platinum. And she turns out to be um, the stereotypical emotionless robot who only does what she's told. And, and then he melts her down at the end because he doesn't like her quite as much. <laughs> so it's, it's just totally crazy. So it's not, you know, watching him kick her around like that isn't really very much fun. But it is sort of fun to watch her annoying him, which she manages to do all the time. Um, and because, you know, she's an invulnerable robot, it's not like he can shake her off when she's throwing her arms around him or anything. So, um, that's interesting. I just found it strange that, um, if you were going to make a robot, why would you give it a gender? You know, why would, why would some of them be male and female? Would there be any kind of reason for that? I mean, if you're going to make it, you could just have it be neutral. Wouldn't that just be easier? Because then if you made a female robot, you wouldn't have to give it breasts like Platinum has and a little skirt like Platinum has and this funky hairdo that she's got as well. So uh, anyway, those are just my thoughts about it. So let's see. Um, here's here's a good synopsis of one of the, the Metal Men stories. And this actually um, goes across several comics and uh, introduces a recurring villain who we would see again and again. It's a Titanic four-part thriller, and it starts out The Deathless Doom. And the way it starts out is that they're all, like, posing for pictures or something on top of a building, and a giant hand smashes through the building, and we don't know what this is. So the metal men sort of spring into action to escape it, and then all sorts of stuff happens, and eventually the giant hand pulls down Dr. Will and Tina into the room, but it turns out it's not a bad guy at all. It turns out to be a good guy. It's um, one of Dr. Will's cohorts who accidentally made himself giant with some weird chemicals that he was doing. Um, <laughs> he, This doctor is insane. I mean, this is not how real doctors do science. So he says, I made countless chemical experiments hoping to find a combination of chemicals, a shortcut to conquer disease, famine, all the ills of mankind. So he's in his laboratory and he's making up all these different things, trying to find the cure to everything. And he says, whenever an experiment failed, it amused me to toss its chemical contents into a unique plastic mold that I had fashioned (laughs) in the shape of a giant man. Clear. He talks to it. Constantly seeing you in humanoid form will remind me of my failures. You're like a ruthless antagonist I have to triumph over so the world can be better for it. So here's this guy. Every time he does a chemical experiment, he pours the bad stuff into this. So it's all just sitting there fermenting and bubbling and creating God knows what. So what do you think is going to happen? Do you think that it's going to cause a bad chemical reaction and explode? That's what most people would think, but no, that's not what happens. It does cause a bad chemical reaction, but it comes to life and turns into a bad guy. And it's got um, chemo breath. That's what he calls it. So it's got this breath that it blows out and destroys things with. So um, the poor scientist who got big because chemo blew a stream of crap onto him. He dies. So now the metal men have to go and fight chemo and, uh, they try to do it in all kinds of different ways, but chemo is, he's huge. He's like 40 feet tall or something. Um, they can't figure out how to do this until finally Dr. Will and platinum, um, jump through this hole that chemo has made in the earth 
and they're far beneath the crust of the earth, which is pretty amazing looking. It looks kind of like a honeycomb, and I don't think that's the way it looks down there, but anyway. Um, he says, we've reached a series of caverns honeycombed with gas jets, so they trick Chemo into stepping into a gas jet. And it says, he is impaled by the vise of the gas jets and imprisoned in an eternal tomb. And that's the end of that story for now. But then he and, and Platinum have to go gather up all the little itty bits of all the metal men and put them back together. But you know what? It didn't last. And Chemo escaped. And then they had to fight him all over again. And all over again. And all over again. And it just kept happening until they sent him out into space. And even then we weren't quite sure. Um, so that story is pretty crazy. But not as crazy as the story that happened later on. Which I'll, I'll provide a link to it. Because Chris Sims really did a great job of deconstructing it. And it has to do with them going into space. Um, because Tin uh, gets captured by a planet of robots, and he's going to be the robot king to the robot queen who's there, who also has breasts. And uh, so they go to try and, and rescue him, and he turns giant and evil for a while, and then um, they turn giant but not evil, and he gets back to regular size, and then the robot queen um, is chasing them all around the planet, and she sends the robot dogs after them to catch them. And then eventually they get out of the planet and everything's fine again. Um, but that that's a pretty wacky story. So the good thing is, um, as Chris Sims always says, why do these things happen? And the answer is because Bob Kaniger. And that's the only answer you can give to this stuff. So um, there is plenty more crazy, wacky stuff in here. And I, I just think it's really wonderful that at that time... These comics were published, and they were popular enough that they kept getting published. You know, it's an interesting thing. In the first couple of stories, um, they end, and right at the end of the story, let me find one so I can actually read it, um, the cast of characters turns to the viewer and says, do you want to see more stories about the Metal Men? Which I'm just so unused to seeing, you know, at that time. Like, oh, so you're actually asking us directly? Like, the comic is asking us. So at the very end of the very first story, the metal men all get destroyed, of course. And uh, Dr. Will says, The metal men existed for a brief moment in time, but if it weren't for them, who knows, time might have run out for the world. And then his sidekick there, army guy, says, Will the will another vast threat arise to summon the metal men into being again? What do you think? Would you like to see them in action? Just drop a card to metal men, CO National Periodical Publications. <laughs> So they did that a couple of times where they just asked people to send in postcards, and clearly it was successful because they kept it running. Um, but there, there's something about a book like this where, for me, it, it's just so important to have a, a crazy, out-of-this-world story where improbable and impossible things happen that's fun, that is no almost knowingly casting off any semblance to reality, and yet it gets published as a comic book because it's fun and reading about it is fun and it makes you laugh and it makes you go, whoa, this is some wacky shit. And I just don't think there are that many comics getting published these days. Comics are just so serious. They're not funny anymore. And I think we need more of this wacky stuff that's not self-consciously crazy where it is a lot of hand-waving and the author's going, oh, look at how crazy I am. I'm being so crazy. Look at me. I'm crazy. I don't get the impression that Bob Kaniger ever felt like that. He was just going, I'm going to make up some cool stuff. And he put it down and by God, DC published it and put it out there and kids bought it and didn't wonder, worry about whether it had some deeper meaning or, or if it was going to 
have a continuity or anything like that. It just was. So I really appreciate that about the Metal Men, and I'm really, really um, looking forward to getting the rest of the archives. So they will be sitting right next to my Legion archives. Now, I want to just say a quick word about the um, new Metal Men, which actually looks kind of cool. Um, I haven't bought them, but I've seen some scans of them. And there is a new character, another girl, who is introduced to the group named Copper. And I'm not quite sure what kind of character Copper is supposed to be, but, you know, it's always good to see another girl in there. Here's my objection to the way I've seen at least one image of Copper, is that um, she is drawn like a child. And I'm not sure that her character is supposed to be um, childlike or childish or anything like that. I think she's drawn like that because she's a girl. And I'm going to actually put this up on the blog because um, I, I think it's important for you guys to see what I'm talking about. So in this panel, it's copper posed next to gold. I'm pretty sure it's gold. Gold is standing very manly, very very robotic looking, very, you know, like I'm going to go kick some ass looking. And copper is standing next to him. She's smaller for one thing. Okay, whatever. She's smaller. And her pose is so passive and so childish and so non-threatening to the point of her body looks like she's trying to apologize for living. It's really bad. Why is she drawn like that if she's uh, a robot? Does Is that what a female robot is supposed to be posed like? That, you know, we need to make sure that um, nobody's going to feel threatened by her? That she's not going to appear to be capable and tough and uh, able to do the things that the male robots are supposed to do? Now, I haven't read it, so I don't know if there's some backstory behind it, but this one image, I actually was pretty... I was like, hey, this sucks. Why are they drawing her like this? Um, also, uh, as I said, Gold looks very robotic. In, he he kind of has a, a C-3PO look to him, where you can actually see the articulation of the joints. So he's got some uh, solid pieces, and then where you know like his legs meet the rest of his torso, you can kind of see. Copper doesn't look like that at all. She looks very smooth. Because, what, is it too uh, gross to see uh, a jointed, a really jointed and robotic-looking woman because that wouldn't be sexy? Is that what it's supposed to be? I don't know what it's supposed to be, but I was just really discouraged in seeing that one thing. You know, like, I got real excited because there was going to be another woman, and then I see this picture of her. So I I haven't had a chance to um, look through any of the other scans of it. I haven't seen it on Scans Daily. So I will definitely do more research on it. But go and take a look at this picture that I'm going to post to the blog. And you tell me what you think. You know, I I think it's very obvious that she's posed that way because she's a woman. And she has to look uh, passive and non-threatening and not really robotic and almost childlike. So that nobody gets the idea that she's going to kick any ass. Okay, I think I'm going to take a little break. I do have um, one more really, really good thing to talk about. Um, So let's have a little bit more music, and then we'll be back, and I'm going to talk about Castle Waiting.
So let's do a couple of commercials. Before I forget, uh, go shop at Comic Relief, the only comic book store that matters on Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley. I actually haven't been there for a while because I've been too busy, but I'm going to have to go and, and blow a hundred bucks or so on new stuff. But they are such a wonderful comic book store. You should totally go there if you're in the area. And if you happen to be visiting Berkeley, like if you have friends who are going to school there or something, go to the store. You will very much appreciate it. Um, also, go to the Lincoln Heights Literary Society journal to read great reviews. There's been a ton of manga reviews lately, not by me, but by other people who know better than I do. Uh, so you should go and read up on what's good over there. And I wanted to also do a little commercial uh, for the new DC animated DVD. The first one's coming out next week. Uh, when we were at WonderCon, Logan and I talked about going to see Bruce Tim and Dan DiDio <coughs> talking about this. And it actually looked really cool. It's Superman Doomsday based on the death of Superman. And we saw what they had at that time, a little trailer for it, which was really cool. So you can see it on YouTube now, and I, I've put it up on my blog. And I'll link to some other cool stuff that they have there. Um, I think there's a little contest that they're running as well where you can go to, I guess, L.A. to meet some of the animators and get your likeness put in the next movie. Um, I'm not sure which is the next movie coming out. I think it's Teen Titans, and then um, New Frontier is definitely on the list, which should be totally awesome. So, yay, uh, Superman Doomsday, out on DVD September 18th, 2007. Um, and I, they send out a press release, which I actually reproduced on the website because it was just too cute. It's written in that totally breathless style. Going punch for punch, Superman finally ends the threat of Doomsday as he throws one last punch and collapses forever, making the ultimate sacrifice to save Metropolis and all those he once loved. Sounds dramatic, doesn't it? So we'll definitely be getting that and reviewing it on the show because it looks really, really good. And, you know, who doesn't love a good animated movie? Oh, I also wanted to mention um, that there have been new episodes of Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends on this week, which are, like, about time. I was just getting so tired of watching the old ones. And the very first one that they showed was just hilarious. It was um, an episode which consisted of Blue telling Mac a story. And the story, what you see is the story that he's telling. And because Blue is telling it, of course, it's crazy and all kinds of um, really funny things happen. And it's kind of a quest story. So there's a ton of Star Wars jokes and Lord of the Rings jokes and just about every kind of geek joke. There's Star Trek jokes that you could imagine in it. It was really, really good. Totally outstanding. And at the same time, they just released season two on DVD and do you know, I called around to a bunch of stores and nobody had it, so I had to order it off the internet. Now i got to wait for it. Jeez. Anyway, on to um, the last two items on our list. And one is Castle Waiting, which is uh, another lovely gift from Greg, and thank you very much for it. This is published by Fantagraphics. It actually came out a while ago, so as usual, I'm late to the game. That's just me all over, isn't it, reading these things long after other people have read them. Uh, I think it came out uh, two or three years ago. And it's a collection of comics that Linda Medley had put out over a very long period of time. It took a long time for her to finish enough of it to collect it in this book. And she is working on another volume of it right now, which now I can't wait to get, of course. Um, but this book is just wonderful. So let me first start out by saying it's a beautiful book. It's a hardcover. Um, it's a, a nice size. I think it's a, a four by six or seven size. Five by seven, I guess. Um, and it just fits in your hand. It's so beautiful. And it is printed on this um, sepia-toned paper. 
it's black and white, black and sepia, and it comes with a lovely ribbon bookmark as well, and the pages are kind of rough cut on the edge, so they have a little texture to them. And it is just so nice to hold in your hands and look at, and it's just good size, and it feels comfortable. It's it's just a, a joy to have. Published by Fantagraphics, in case I didn't mention that before. Um, and... It was, I didn't know what to expect because I had read a little bit about it and I wasn't sure if I was going to dig it or if it was going to be good or bad. And it turned out to be just something I fell in love with as I was reading it. Um, I'll read you the very first page to give you the setting for it. Long ago, in an age so happy that neither you nor I will ever see its like, there was a town, and this town was called Putney. Good Mother Luck smiled on Putney, for the king was as wise as he was kindly, the land was at peace, and the bustling port drew trade ships from far and wide. Um, And the illustrations are just so precise and beautiful, but minimalist at the same time. She has such a way of drawing. I love the fact that it's called Putney. Um, Putney, for me, makes me laugh because um, there's a town in England called Putney, and uh, I saw um, some really incredible uh, African bands there at a pub called the Half Moon Putney and it was quite the amazing thing to be in England at this little tiny pub seeing these African guys totally blowing the walls down and people totally grooving on it while drinking English beer in the middle of winter. It's crazy. Um, So I love the fact that it's called Putney and the whole story is of um, people who live in a castle, castle waiting and what happens to them but it's not an action-adventure kind of thing. It's much more like Canterbury Tales, if you've ever read it. And if you haven't read Canterbury Tales, you really should. It's very good. I would not advise reading it in the original Middle English because it's kind of tough that way. I had to do that in college, and it was really hard. But it's people telling stories to each other about the things that have happened to them. And the stories are funny, and you have to trust that the stories are real, and who knows, some of the stuff might be made up. But you get to know each person by the kind of stories that they tell about themselves, and that's pretty much what happens in here. The the, the place where this all happens, this world, is kind of a mixture of real people and um, kind of 17th century, 16th, 17th century living, but also fairy tales at the same time. There are talking animals, people who interact with humans. Um, there's magic. Uh, there's demons. There's all kinds of funky stuff that happens. And the really cool thing is that everybody takes it all in stride, that this is their world and nothing surprises them. And I love that. I love that this is just the way the world is. It's so cool. So, um, the story eventually settles around um, our heroine. I should say hero. I said I was going to stop using the word heroine. Okay, our hero. Our hero, whose name is Lady Jane. She is pregnant, and she flees her home, and we assume her abusive husband, to find a place where she can have her child and live in peace, and that's where she ends up, is at Castle Waiting. It seems like she's been seeking it all along. We're not quite sure how she knows about it. And we haven't really found out very much about her, um, aside from the fact that her child is um, not fully human. Uh, He's kind of cute. He's a little Shrekish, I guess. And he's very, very cute, and everybody loves him. And so... Part of the story is of how she got to the castle, and then when she gets there, who the people are. Um, there's some human people, and there's some non-human people. Um, so the castle now is run by a guy named Rackham, who's um, a stork-headed guy. He's very bird-like. And um, there's also uh, the character of Simple Simon, who is the son of the woman who runs the place. Um, 
and there is a nun there named Sister Peace who has a beard, and turns out that she's part of an order of bearded nuns, which is really, really cool. And the religion in it is kind of weird. It's it's not really, I mean, it's Christian, but not the kind of Christian that we're used to. It's kind of Christian and magical all at the same time, which I really like. Um, and there's also uh, a guy who's a horse whose name is Chess, which somehow just amuses me tremendously that his name is Chess, and he's a horse. Um, and he's kind of the strong guy. He He's a knight, of course, because he's a horse. Get it? He's a knight. Chess, get it, get it. And uh, he comes back after some travels, and he turns out to be a, a pretty fun guy. So... I, there's so much in this book. I mean, I can't even articulate all the different stories that are in there. And the second half of the book is really Sister Peace telling stories about how she came to Castle Waiting. And it's about how she grew up and how she was in the circus for a while. And then she joined this group of nuns, all of them who have beards of different uh, types. You know, some of them just have a little bit of five o'clock shadow. And there's one nun there who looks exactly like Jesus. And they're complaining because she always gets to play Jesus when they're doing the plays. Um, but the whole thing is infused with this really good feeling. It's a world where bad things happen, but all of the people that we meet are so nice to each other. All of the main characters. Now, there's bad characters, too. The guy who runs the circus where um, Sister Peace was a member of is an absolute asshole. But he gets his comeuppance in the end, and it's, it's quite appropriate what happens to him. And there are some other kind of nasty people. There's a Miller who's also an asshole, but again, he kind of gets what's coming to him. But things really tend to work out right in the end. And the reason that they work out right is that people help each other. All of the good characters here are so willing to help each other uh, to make things better. And I think it's so positive and, oh my God, it's so refreshing to actually pick up a book and read it and not be worried that the bad thing was going to happen, that suddenly there was going to be a plague and everybody was going to die, or that evil was going to come, or that they were going to have to defeat some big bad enemy, you know? It's like, I don't know, I'm reading too much Lord of the Rings, but that was that was my fear, and it's not like that at all. It's, it's just so uplifting and positive, and funny, really funny. There are tons of visual puns that are in here. You have to look very, <coughs> excuse me, very carefully at the way things are drawn. And there's a lot of funny commentary and characters kind of smart-assing each other. It, it's really, really good, um, and I'm really impatient. I, I, I want the next collection to come out, because I don't think I could stand reading it piecemeal. It would be too hard. And that's another comment that I have about this collection. You know, um, I, I think I said when I was reviewing the Watchmen, Watchmen collection, it would have been insane to try to read that issue by issue, which is like... I couldn't have stood it. And I feel the same way about this. I, I feel very lucky that I got to read it all in one go in a big book. And I want the second one to be done right now so I can keep reading it and find out what happens to all our characters. So it, it's a wonderful, delightful book. It's so finely crafted. You can just feel the love and the attention that went into it. I wholeheartedly recommend it. And from a feminist point of view, it's awesome. There are all these really, really strong characters. Very few male characters who have a starring role in any of this. The whole Sister Peace saga is about her and her female friends and the order of nuns. Of course, they're all women. There are a couple of male characters in it, but it's really the women who get everything done. And at Castle Waiting, too, even though Rackham is um, sort of nominally in charge and, and does some of the more administrative stuff. It's really the women who are responsible for keeping things going on a daily basis. And I really like seeing that acknowledged, that it's not assumed and um, 
brushed under the rug. It really highlights the fact that this is what women do in in this world, in these situations, and there's appreciation for it and um, a love shown for all of the effort that they put into making the world a better place. So I, I could go on and on about this, but I will just say I love Castle Waiting. I think it's wonderful, and um, you should all read it if you haven't already. So I have one more thing I want to talk about so that the show doesn't get too terribly long, and that is something I've mentioned before, which is the Silver Surfer Requiem miniseries. There are only four issues um, written by J. Michael Straczynski from Babylon 5 and illustrated by um, Isad Ribic, who's the artist. And I, I will tell you right now that I haven't bought these. I've been getting them off the torrents. And now that I've read them all, because the last one came out not that long ago, I will definitely buy the trade paperback when it comes. So, you know, I this is maybe an argument in favor of um, going to an electronic mode of distribution for some of this stuff. I don't know how many copies of the individual issues that they sold, but I'm guessing a lot of people are going to buy this trade because it is a really beautiful thing. And um, I am certainly going to spend the money to get it after having read these four issues for free. So, you know, go ahead, turn me in if you want to. But I did download them. Um, this I'll, I'll say, um, I'm going to say what the spoilers are as I go through this. So if you haven't read it yet and you don't want to know what happens, don't listen to this part. It won't be that long. But it's basically this uh, an outside continuity type of story where the Silver Surfer... Uh, realizes that he's dying, that whatever Galactus did to him to make him his herald is now wearing off over time and space and everything. So he goes to Earth and he asks um, Reed Richards if he can help, and he can't. And then he pretty quickly accepts the fact that he's going to die and um, makes peace with Earth. He has a a nice issue where he has some good quality time with Spider-Man and Mary Jane and gives a gift to the whole Earth. And then he flies off into space and he encounters um, some alien races who are having a war and he puts a stop to that. And he finally gets back home to his home planet, to Zenla, and he dies. And Galactus is there when he dies and um, Galactus provides a very fitting tribute to him at the end. And I I just thought this was beautiful. It's so different from a lot of what you see in comics and really different from other stuff I've seen. I feel like um, Straczynski really got a feeling for who the surfer is, this very remote, majestic and caring individual who was kind of thrust into this role and who made this sacrifice for his home planet. And as he's dying, he gets a lot of that back in ways that I don't think we've seen before. Um, and it's it really is emotional and touching and, and seeing a character like this die, even though you know it's like not in real continuity so no the silver surfer isn't dead for the rest of the marvel universe it, it's it's a real wrench because you've gotten so used to him over time you know the original silver surfer comics were 40 years ago and now we're, we're seeing in one vision what the end of that story is going to be like um and he he remains true to his character um he is accepting of his own death at, at the very end galactus says i can try to save you and he says no this is the end time for me. Everything has its own time and it's time for me to die now. So he does and he goes on the last final journey. And um, in all places that he has touched, his memory is preserved as a being that wanted peace above everything. And I think that is the best tribute to the surfer that you could possibly imagine. Um, The art, I I know, I, I think I complained a little bit before 
uh, about, or maybe I didn't, I can't remember whether I was doing this on the show or whether I just told someone. Anyway, in the very first issue, I didn't like the art of the Fantastic Four very much. I didn't like the way their faces were drawn. Um, the art, for me, got a little better as it went through. And then this final issue, where he's back on Zen Law, is just beautiful. Like, ugh beautiful landscapes and everything. It definitely has this painted, painterly look to it, which makes it different. It's much more in an Alex Ross type of style than in a pen and ink style. And it it is... I'm glad they called it Requiem because it is like a Requiem. The whole four issues are very slow moving. It's, it's very paced and um, kind of regal in that way. It's building towards an inevitable conclusion, like pretty much you know he's going to die. So how is he going to die and how is that going to be meaningful? And it's it's very deliberately done, which I really, really like. There's no, um, I mean, there's explosions, but it's not that kind of explosion. It's not action that's moving this forward. There's a lot of dialogue and there's some um, narration, which you find out where that's coming from at the end, too, which I thought was really cool. Um, but it did feel like a requiem. You know, a, a requiem is a, um, a, a composition where you're honoring someone who's dead, and that's what this is really about. So I, I am really pleased with this. I think it's great, and I hope that the trade just flies off the shelf. I really can't wait for that to come out. And I'm going to buy a copy for my brother as well, because I think he's really going to like this. So I can definitely recommend the, the Surfer Requiem. Um, I don't know when the trade's coming out, but uh, apparently it's being collected that way. Um, there are some scans of it on Scans Daily if you just want to get a flavor for what it looks like. Um, but yeah, it is a very beautiful thing. So let me look at my little list here, see if I talked about all the crap I was supposed to talk about. Oh yeah, one more thing. Um, in conjunction with our good friends at the Lincoln Heights Literary Society and the, the editor-at-large, Ginger Mayerson, um, I've written a story that's going to be included in a small collection of gay fiction gay smutty fiction called Chase and Other Stories that um, is being published by the Wapshot Press. Isn't that a great name? Uh, it's going to be out soon, like in a month or something. We're still trying to get all the final editing done. But I wrote a, a cute, you know, fluffy little story, uh, just a mere bag of shells, but I thought it turned out well. And there's other stories in there that are really, really, really good. Um, so I will put up the information on that when it's done. If you're at all interested in that sort of stuff, you might want to purchase this book because I think it'll be good. So I think that's it for now. Um, Silicon is coming up really soon at the beginning of October, and I'm going to be on a panel there with my friend Molly Kylie and um, some other good folks. And Barbara Hambly is going to be there, who's a, a Trek author and also a science fiction author. I still don't know exactly when my panel is, but I will be sure to post that when it's actually happening. So um, if you plan on coming to Silicon, drop me a note and let me know at... Um, Lena at troubledscience.com because I'd love to meet up with some people and uh, if you do just come to my panel please um, you know take a moment to say hi to me afterwards because I'd love to talk with some people who are coming and until then I will leave you with another interesting piece of music because I always like to play interesting music for you guys to see if you if you like it and you know I'm just going to keep playing it because I I do whatever I I feel like the show needs at the end so I think this song will, will be a good one is waiting. 